still my soul. Hey everybody, this is Phil. Welcome to our Bible study podcast. At the end of this study, please take the time to subscribe to the Glen Springs Church YouTube channel and check out our website. Also, if you live in the Gainesville, Florida area, we would love to have you visit us in person. For now, let's open up the Heavenly Library and may the words of the Holy Spirit sink deep into our hearts. Thanks for joining us. In every Good morning. I think that's our cue to begin as the lights come back up again. Nice, cool morning. We're in Ezra, Nehemiah. Um, We're going to do chapters 9 and 10 today, and this is a particularly hard grouping of uh, scriptures here because there's some tough decisions that have to be made for these people. And it, you know, it's difficult to sort of put this into perspective. And so we're going to try to do the best job we can with this. Um, So as we begin, we're in this second cycle here. We had Ezra 1 through 6 was the first one where they're coming and they're building the altar and then the temple. And as that temple is complete, it's about 520 And now, or 515 rather, and now we're going back to 458 when Ezra arrived. That's where we picked up in 7 and 8. He got his edict from the king of Persia and all this authority as he comes into the land to to basically reestablish this Torah. That was his specialty. He was a man of the word trained and living and able to teach. And so he gets this authority from the king of Persia in order to go back into the land. And as he arrives, basically, we we pick up in in chapter 7. We did 7 and 8. And the first uh, verse of of chapter 9 is, Now when these things had been completed, the princes princes approached me. The princes approached me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land according to their abominations, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has intermingled with the people of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. So, Ezra's reaction, we're going to get to that in a minute. He's just crushed. He's devastated by this this circumstance. But let's look at a little bit of the dynamics of what's been happening here. God really hasn't... um, as far as we can tell, intruded into the operation of this new, these exiles as they've come forth for about 55, almost 60 years, 
they've been living their lives in the land. The temple's been built. They're living their lives. And God then raises up this person who has this expertise in scripture and law. And he says, the king of Persia responds to his request, grants him a lot of authority in order to go back to go to Jerusalem and Judah and bring this message, the Torah and, and the word of God. And so as we learned in the seventh and eighth chapters, he began this in the fifth month of the seventh year of the reign of Artaxerxes. He arrived on the fifth, the first day of the fifth month. We're going to discover right here that when it says um, at the start here, now when these things had been completed, the, what, what was completed was the exiles had come from captivities with burnt offerings to the God of Israel, uh, bulls and rams. Uh, then verse 36, and they delivered the king's edict to the king's satraps, to the governors in the provinces beyond the river, and they supported the people of the house of God. So as we take up chapter 9, it's actually in the ninth month. Four months now, Ezra's been in the land. He's been teaching and instructing. He's been appointing people in positions of authority and power. That edict, when you review what it is he's got, he's got a tremendous amount of power. And so we've got this circumstance that's now being brought to him. These people, and particularly the leadership, have been taking for themselves and for their sons the daughters of the people of the land. This is a distressing circumstance. Now, as we look at this, it's conceivable that this could have been happening right along for 55 years, but I don't really think that's the case. I think that let's look at why were arranged marriages done in that day? What was one of the purposes for me offering you my daughter. What are we doing? That's it. Basically, what's happened now in this particular time frame is, particularly the leadership here, is, has been entering into alliances. They have not. There's two issues here. They have not separated themselves from the people of the land. The second issue is they've taken daughters of the people of the land for their own wives and for the lives of their children. So what you've got is a lot of political intrigue going on here where I'm living in the land, I'm a, I'm, I'm a leader in the nation of Israel, I'm creating an alliance with the people of the land for trade purposes, for whatever purposes, we're establishing these alliances and part of that establishment is the, the, the exchange of daughters, as it were, for wives and circumstance. So my sense is that this particular circumstance that has arisen and is brought to our attention right now is relatively new. And God basically says, here's my man. He's got all this authority to come into the land in order to deal with 
what he considers a very serious situation. And so what we find now is that now as Ezra comes in, he's relatively unaware of this circumstance. Let's look at his reaction when... uh, Whoops, I got to our guests. <laughs> now he's, he's, Steve's bringing us back up here. Anyway, we, we read verse 2, uh, verse 1 and 2, and the princes are foremost. Verse 3 of chapter 9. When I heard about this matter, I tore my garments and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. And everyone who trembled at the words of the Lord of Israel on account of their Three times here um, as he's continuing in this prayer and to give us a peg in his holy place for our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage for we are slaves yet in our bondage God has not forsaken us but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us Reviving. This is the second time he uses reviving. This is a point where God has. And looking toward that which is to come 13 years from now when Nehemiah. Sons, nor take their daughters or your sons to your sons. Never seek their peace or their prosperity. That you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance forever. There's a benefit to separating yourself from these people. You will be a strong nation, and when you're done and you, you die, this land then goes to your inheritance. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escaped 
remnant, third time here, as this, shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the people who committed such abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant nor any who escape? O Lord, God of Israel, you are righteous, for we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this powerful prayer an acknowledgement of their sin, their circumstance, of the blessing of God, of his intent to revive them and for this remnant to be preserved and, uh, and brought forth. There's a few things in here as we look at this. Look at the, the intensity of the edict that he gives. In, in 721, we had... I, even I, King Artaxerxes, issue a decree to all the treasurers in all the provinces beyond the river that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe, the law of the God of heaven may require of it, it shall be done diligently. <laughs> okay, this man's coming in and he's coming with this authority from the king of Persia. And what the effect of breaking up these marriages these divorces is going to be breaking alliances. And he's coming in here and he has this type of authority with all the leadership in the land. Whatever he's going to require, then you're to, you're to provide that to him. Mainly the intent, I think, of that portion is that they're going to give him the resources he needs in order to reestablish this worship in the temple. But he's coming with this edict from the king, and the net effect of what's going to happen next is not only are these marriages going to be separated, these alliances are going to be broken. The nation now is going to separate itself from the people of the land. That's the intent behind what's happening next. So once again, in 725, you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges that they may judge all the people who are in the province beyond the river, even all those who know the laws of your God, and you may teach anyone who is ignorant of them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed upon him strictly, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of goods or for imprisonment. This edict gives him an incredible amount of authority as he goes in and he deals not only with the leadership of the people of Israel, but also with the people of the land. So as he's bringing forth the, the next situation, we have um, you know, him coming with this extreme authority. Now, there's a couple things that as we look at... Um, Ezra 10, 9, I can't read it up there, but I really appreciate this new screen. <laughs> so all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days in the ninth month of the 20th year, uh, the 20th of the month, 
All the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and in the heavy rain. So as he arrived in the fifth month, we're now on the 20th day of the ninth month. So he's been there. He's basically, his authority's been established. And then as we look at 1014, <clears throat> let our e leaders represent the whole assembly and let all those in the cities who have married foreign wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of each city until the fierce anger of our Lord on account of this matter is turned away from us. Now, we don't have the benefit that we had earlier of Haggai. Basically, when we looked at what he was saying about the conditions of the land, basically all those curses that were part of them not following in, obedient, uh, in, in obedience to God were upon the people. They basically were working incredibly hard and there was never enough. There was drought, there was famine. All those things were happening. Right now, the only indication that we've got that they're not being blessed by God is this reference in 1014, until the fierce anger of our God on account of this matter is turned away from us. We don't know the exact circumstance of the people, the manner in which they're living their lives, but obviously they recognize that God is not blessing them at this point in time, that there is, God's anger is upon them at this time. And so it was wonderful that we were able to look at Haggai and have an explanation of, wow, these people, this is not a, a, a good circumstance for these people to be in. Right now, we can, we can anticipate or look from this word that their circumstance is similar to this. This culture, this nation is not thriving at this point in time, and they're recognizing that the fierce anger of God is upon them. Uh, once again, in 1016, but the exiles... Uh, did so, Ezra the priest selected men who were heads of the father's households for each of their father's households, all of them by name. So they convened on the first day of the 10th month to investigate the matter. They finished investigating all the men who were married to foreign wives on the first day of the first month. So it takes them two months in order to resolve the issue. We haven't really gotten to the manner in which they're going to try to um, correct the circumstance they're in, but we're going to get there next. That's sort of the time frame is from when he got there in the first day of the fifth month until the first day of the next year, then he's had to deal with this conflict um, that we're, we're talking about here. One of the things that as we look at the scripture references when the princes are issuing their objection to what's happening, we've got a couple different historical references for it, like in 9.2, for they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the land. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. Holy race there literally means holy seed. And so as we look to other scripture for what's God's position with regard to this circumstance, we go back to Deuteronomy 
Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. This is as they're entering, anticipating entering into the land. You shall not give their daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, for you are a holy people to the Lord our God. Now there's a difference between a holy seed and a holy people. What does a holy seed imply? Race. There, it's an exclusivity to the lineage of the people. Do we have circumstance recorded in Scripture where wives who were not of the nation of Israel, are, women who are not of the nation of Israel, become wives of, of the Israelites? Give me an example. <laughs> Rahab, Ruth, you know, there's a number of examples. But in those cases, basically, what was Ruth's declaration? Your people are my people. Where you go, I will go. Your God is my God. These are converts. These are people who have given themselves to become the people of God. This holy seed is a slight departure, and, and the scholars here, you know, some of them quibble over the fact that, well, maybe it wasn't the best thing for these people to divorce all these wives and this sort of thing. But I think it was critical for the integrity of the nation, for the preservation of this people, that they separate themselves from the people of the land. There's been enough warnings about what the consequence would be if they fail to separate themselves. Then we go to Psalms, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices, verse 36, and served their idols, which became a snare to them. And then in Leviticus 19, 19, you are to keep my statutes. You shall not breed together two kinds of cattle. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor wear garment upon two kinds of mixed things together. So as you collect those things from the, the law, you then begin to recognize what God's position was with regard to this um, marrying of these, these foreign wives. The reality of the situation is these were not the Canaanites necessarily that they've aligned themselves with. That these are the people of the land, which is a mixed bag, and we've gone through that before. But the reality of the situation is that at this point in time, there's, it's a dangerous situation where this culture can be losing its identity. It can be influenced and swayed by these foreign um, influences. And in many times in the past, the, the problems that they ran into with idol worship and everything else was brought about by these other peoples. And these alliances and marriages are problematic. So once again, as we look at Ezra 11, you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with un the uncleanliness of the lands, of the people of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from end to end with their impurity. The condition of the people of the land 
really has not changed significantly from the time when they were going to enter into the exile. They're still worshiping their idols. There's still all the potential problematic influence with these alliances. Then when you look at Leviticus 18.24, do not defile yourselves with any of these things for all these nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled for the land has become defiled. Therefore, I have brought its punishment upon it. So the land has spewed out its inhabitants in Deuteronomy 18.9, when you enter into the land which the Lord God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate these detestable things of those nations. The warnings are there. They're clear. Okay. It's, it's a pretty intense circumstance that we find the nation in at this point in time. We're going to pick it back up again after uh, Ezra's prayer in verse 10. Now, while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself, prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel for the people wept bitterly. Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandments of our God, let it be done according to the law. So this proposal that's coming from Shechaniah basically says, we need to separate ourselves from the people of the land. And in order to do that, we need to have all these wives put away. Now, we don't know what the disposition of these wives and children were. And it distresses me to think that these households and these marriages are being broken up. But as I read that, according to the law, I have to anticipate that a provision is made for the care and upkeep of these people. They're not just cast aside, but they're going to be provided for appropriately, as it, as it references there, according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility but we will be with you, be courageous and act. So Shechaniah is inspiring Ezra to use the authority he has. You're the one that has to make this decision. You're the one that has to do this. Be courageous and stand up before the people and bring forth this declaration. Whew, I wouldn't want to be Ezra. <laughs> For that to happen. So that opportunity is there uh, for these foreign women and for the children as well if they're old enough to make such <laughs> decisions. 
So if you look at the whole context, when he says, don't seek their peace or their prosperity, he's not saying go to war against them and try to undermine their economy. He's saying, you don't seek it for yourself by compromise of who you are as the people of God, which is what they've been doing. You can't compromise your relationship with God for the sake of trying to be prosperous, making sure well, they won't invade us if we are married. No. Uh, so these women uh, who undoubtedly were, many of them would be idolatrous, or likely would return back to their, to their lands, to their families, rather than give themselves. But that, there, there's a path for that. How it all worked out, we're not told. But what we are told, they separate. And from, from the nations. The big thing is happening. All right, thank you. I appreciate that. Okay, this has got to be tough for Ezra. Um, he's thrown into this role of leadership. And he's got all kinds of training in the word and in, in, in this. And the hand of God is upon him. And this is a fortunate circumstance if you're having to face this nation at this time. You know, this is going to happen. And Ezra moved ahead with this following God's rule despite the politics of breaking those alliances um, and moving forward. Yeah. He stayed with God's will, even, I'm sure, realizing there may be ramifications from this politically. So, verse 5 of chapter 10. Ezra rose and made the leading priest, the Levites, and all Israel... Take oath, made them, <laughs> that's the word that he uses, that they would do according to this proposal. So they took the oath. Then Ezra rose and before the house of God went into the chamber of Johanahan, the son of Eliashib. Although he went there, he did not eat bread nor drink water for he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. They made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem and that whoever would not come within three days according to the counsel of the leaders and elders, all his possessions should be forfeit and he himself excluded from the assembly of the exiles. This is exercising considerable authority as he makes this declaration. You got three days to come and, and assemble together, or there's serious consequences. Verse 9, so all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month and the 20th of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and the heavy rain. And then Ezra the priest stood and said to them, you have been unfaithful and married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession to the Lord God of our fathers and do his will and separate yourself from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly replied in a loud voice, that's right. As you have said, so it is our duty to do. 
but there are many people and it is the rainy season and we are not able to stand in the open, nor can the task be done in one or two days, for we have transgressed greatly in this matter. Let our leaders, um, let our leaders represent the whole assembly and let all those in our cities who have married foreign wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of each city until the fierce anger of our Lord on account of this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Ashiel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this with Meshulam and <laughs> Shabbatiah and the Levites supporting them. So they have overwhelming support for the action that's been done. There's a few people that are basically saying, ah, I'm in opposition to this. Not an easy decision, not an easy circumstance to break up these houses, these, these families. Um, and certainly not something that we're going to be able to basically apply to our lives today. Basically, we've got some guidance in the New Testament as to the manner in which we are going to, the attitude that we're going to have toward divorce, you know, and without, you know, getting too uh, far from a field here. But basically, we've got some references in 1 Corinthians 7, 12. But the rest I say, not the Lord, that if your brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send away her husband. In 1 Peter 3, in the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that if any of you are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must be with not with merely external raiding of hair, braiding of hair and wearing of gold jewelry or putting on of dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. So even though we have this circumstance that played forth in the history of Israel, the one thing that we have to sort of put this in the context of, it's going to be about 400 years before God brings forth the Messiah. And this nation has to be able to sustain itself and have its religious and cultural identity preserved. And the one thing that happened as a result of the captivity and the return from exile, basically they gave up chasing after idols. So we're going to pick it up again in Nehemiah next week. Thank you all.
Again, thanks for listening. If you live in North Central Florida or you're just passing through, we would love to have you visit us at the Glen Springs Road Church of Christ. Also, check out our website, glenspringschurch.com. You can learn more about our church family and how to contact us. Until next time, God bless. Keep silence before him.